Civic Radio. Welcome to Civic Radio. Today's guest is Brian Boyer. You know, I think citizenship is somehow participation in a thing that's bigger than yourself and where everybody has an equal stake. So, you know, even if you happen to have a larger house or a fancier car, you are just as much of a citizen as the person next to you. It feels almost with every passing day that there's less and less of that in evidence uh, on our streets and in our politics. Brian is a designer based in New York City who has worked in social, civic and government design for a long time. Uh, I run Makeshift Society, which is a co-working space for creatives. I'm also a partner at Dash Marshall, which is an architecture studio. And recently I was part of a multidisciplinary team called Union, which was looking at branch libraries in New York City for the Center for an Urban Future and Architecture League. My trainings in architecture, um, I've been very passionate about the built environment for a long time, but uh, I realized uh, actually more or less at the moment when I was completing my studies that uh, although I, I really care about the built environment, buildings are maybe not the thing that uh, gives you the most leverage or maybe not the point of the most leverage. And so I ended up working at the Finnish Innovation Fund, uh, which is an organization that reports to the Finnish parliament and spent five years in Helsinki there using what we called strategic design. So design as a set of tools to help uh, national and local government make more effective programs and policies. Really, the uh, work was using design in the context of decision-making. The library work was um, initiated by the Architecture League and the Center for an Urban Future here in New York, and they basically asked five design teams to reimagine the branch libraries and see um, how you could really give them a new life by taking that on as a design challenge. What was the design you came up with and what was your process? We had a, a multidisciplinary team. There are about 11 people on it, um, and you can find this at libraryness.com. Um, we were all very interested in, in designing new libraries and kind of attracted to the project because of that. But the minute we sat down with the research and really started digging into the problem, we realized that a shiny, fancy library is almost the last thing that the city needs. So the current um, state of good repair needs somewhere on the order of a billion dollars. And that's a pretty substantial thing. So um, the last election, for instance, involved uh, um, a big debate around universal uh, pre-K for children in, in New York City. And this... Um, the, the need for the libraries is even more of a financial ask than the universal pre-K, which was part of the mayoral race. And unfortunately, you know, many people kind of have made the joke, but uh, maintenance just isn't sexy enough to be part of a political campaign. So we really didn't see um, the possibility of shiny renderings drawing people to them in such a compelling way that suddenly a billion dollars just appears out of nowhere and can fund this work. And so our approach was to instead look at how you would leverage other forms of capital. So how would you leverage the time, the expertise, in some cases the institutional weight of individuals, communities, 
museums, uh, nonprofits, and all sorts of other organizations to bring an incremental set of resources to the library um, and to effectively try to de-risk investment in civic assets. So, you know, like I was saying earlier, I think one of the challenges we have is, is political capital where uh, it's very risky to experiment, which means the more we can do as designers, as activists, as people working in social innovation, the more we can do to show that new things uh, can produce good results and the more we can show that they are um, possible, the more that de-risks movement in that direction and the, the more that will make it easier for our municipal uh, and other leaders to uh, move in the same direction. The big idea of the project was something that we called radical maintenance, uh, which is really a, a notion of one, broadening the number of people who are involved in maintaining our civic assets. So finding ways to bring in members of the neighborhood or, excuse me, or people um, with training, say, in the electrical union or the plumbing union to uh, donate some of their time during their off hours, if it's possible. Um, and the second is to make maintenance what it should be, which is an ongoing thing. So instead of the kind of cycle that often happens here is we have a capital expenditure to build a new something, a new library, whatever it is. And then that falls into decay because of deferred maintenance until the point at which the maintenance need is so large that the entire thing has to be knocked down and it gets converted into a new capital expense to build a replacement. And so with the radical maintenance program, we're looking at ways to um, just bring people in to help keep up the assets that they have. And that also creates a new relationship between those people and those assets, right? Which hopefully creates a virtuous cycle. Um, in particular, we really focused on the roofs, the rooftops. And the reason why this makes sense is because a number of the libraries uh, in the boroughs of New York have uh, partial or, or nearly whole failures of their roof. So they're leaking. Um, they're, you know, they're, they're not allowing new equipment to be added, which would then provide air conditioning or heating, etc. <coughs> Excuse me. And so we took on the roof as a challenge and basically imagined a scenario in which um, organizations uh, like, for instance, a major museum here in New York uh, might be able to put its weight behind a design competition to really drive innovation in the design of a roof structure itself. And the reason that that's important is for you know all of the uh, needs that I cited previously but also, just on the very basic level, the roof is, is the most visible part of the building, right? It's the one that's highest up that, um, in some cases, pokes up above other buildings. You can see it from further down the street. And because of that, it's an important symbolic opportunity. And so we were looking at um, kind of how do you solve functional and symbolic needs at the same time with one intervention? And, and the rooftop really made sense there. Um, well, this project was a, a provocation. That's the way the study was designed by the Center for an Urban Future. So 
you know, we were looking to provoke a conversation about um, other forms of capital and, and their role in renovating civic assets. And that one, you know, I think we were happy with the way the project was received initially. Um, but I guess one of my discoveries in this process is that it's still really difficult to have a discussion about these kinds of issues uh, without it devolving into politics. And so at the at the symposium where our team and, and the other four teams were presenting, you know, it really kind of became an opportunity for political grandstanding by some of the public officials who were there, um, which is maybe not unexpected. But uh, but I, I think what it drove home for me was was the importance of actually finding a way to prototype things. So as much as it's it's fun or even intellectually satisfying to uh, tell a story like this, if that's the end of the process, uh, we're not going to change much. And so we, we need to find small ways to prototype big ideas. And I think that's the challenge is um, it's very easy to prototype small things like building an app for transit data, right? That, that might be hard, but on the grand scheme of things, it's, it's relatively easy compared to let's prototype changing the way an institution works, right? Or let's prototype changing the funding stream for the local library. But we need to find a way to prototype those big ideas. And and I don't have any great answers there, but that's one of the, the central concerns that I'm interested in moving forward. So what do you think the role of a public institution is today? Actually, um, I probably shouldn't admit this, but institutions are my hobby, my pastime. I, I, I really geek out about institutions. And I, for me, the thing that they do for us is they provide continuity and scale. So in the past, uh, when, uh, when the population of the world, or let's say at least in the West, urbanized uh, relatively rapidly, we needed institutions to deal with the number of people that we had now in our societies and in our cities. And uh, we needed those dealings to be equal and fair and consistent over time, regardless of which individuals came and went. And so institutions are a kind of abstraction layer uh, within those dealings that allow in any person at any time to go to the state for, say, a driver's license or a business license or some kind of inquiry on a tax question and get a consistent answer. And, you know, those two functions, I think, are really important. Um, I don't think anybody would would quibble with the need for continuity or the need for serving an entire society, even if the population is quite large. But one of the difficulties uh, that, that I see with the institutions that we have now is that the way that they got to scale and the way that they became continuous is by kind of abstracting away a lot of the details, right? So institutions make decisions based on averages, based on typical conditions. Uh, they have a very hard time taking into account the specifics of each individual or specific uh, corners of a neighborhood. And that means that they feel very distant. Um, they feel very separated from the actual lives that we live. And so the question now that I think a lot of us are grappling with is really how do we make our institutions more responsive and how do we remove some of those layers of abstraction between citizens and their institutions to make them feel like they're much more connected to us and, and much more connected to the, the collective will of, of the population. 
do you have a clear idea of what that might be or what that might look like? Um, lots of people in the UK are talking about a digital public space. But have you got have you got set ideas or examples of things which you think are working well? You know, I can say that um, for me, analog and digital are not really a choice anymore. Both are always present. And so uh, as much as, you know, there are exciting things that we can do with technology, we still need to figure out how we coexist in real space on the street. Um, and... For that reason, I, I'm not a believer that digital will just fix things, although it's super important. So, you know, for instance, some of the work that um, Gov.UK has done in the UK has been really inspiring, uh, I think, for communities around the world, primarily because it's, it's such a straightforward way of interacting with government resources, right? So, you know, by taking a human-centered design approach, and an iterative development approach, they've been able to build a web presence that, uh, although represents the national government, speaks to you like a citizen, like a like a friend even, and and that's really remarkable. You know, I think the experiments in personal budgeting for healthcare or these kinds of small things are are really getting there, um, but it's it still remains to be seen. Uh, how we how we rethink the core of how an institution works, and so, you know, I'm I'm anxious for more experimentation in that space. I think it's constrained, uh, certainly here, and I would guess probably also in the UK by the intense political capital that it would take to to do something more experimental. Um, there's a, a kind of lock there where we expect the government to do things right and yet we know that whenever you do something new it's it's always a best guess and that means it's probably not right the first time so that's the kind of difficulty at the moment do you think there's a willingness on the part of the state to to facilitate this stuff and be interested in it and and support it in the US we have quite strong layers of government at federal uh, state and local levels. In, in some cases, you have a municipal and a county government. So that would be four layers of, of government. Um, and that creates, it, it means that it's harder to find a place where you could, you know, fairly characterize it as willing to experiment. Um, that being said, you know, I think New York City has been doing uh, some pretty aggressive work around thinking innovatively about the public spaces of the city, uh, introducing new bike lanes, new public plazas uh, or pedestrian malls, um, looking at uh, education and access to education. Um, There's a lot of work done under the previous mayor, and, and this mayor is sort of gearing up now, and I'm optimistic. So we'll see. There are certainly other cities in the States... Um, you know, I know that Boston has been very ambitious. Uh, I was just in Philadelphia recently, and and they uh, have in, invested and and care a great bit about open data, and, and they're trying to see what headways they can make there. Um, so there's there's exciting stuff happening, but certainly nobody has the answer yet. Uh, one, I, maybe this is a question that you're not. I'm interested to see what you think in terms of like an understanding on the part of civil servants about how this stuff works and why it's important. Do you think there's a, a general 
knowledge about this. I don't mean in terms of like coding and getting this stuff doing, but a kind of understanding of what what an open data portal does and how people might use it. And well, I mean, on open data in particular, I think one of the difficulties is that it it doesn't do all that much right now. There still haven't been enough killer apps that use open data to really get people excited. So it, I, I personally see open data as a very important part of the future, but at the moment it's not selling itself, and I don't know that the community around it is doing enough to sell it. Um, that being, I was just going to say, that being said, the experiences that I've had with people inside government is that generally the person who works on the front line and sees the day-to-day really understands the need for doing things differently and having the flexibility to go off script because they're they're sitting at the shore you know of constantly breaking waves that just come to them again and again somebody in crisis or somebody who really needs their help somebody who really needs this or that uh and kind of the operating context that they're in doesn't always give them the tools they need to respond and similarly, when you speak to people who are in leadership positions, you know, a, a permanent secretary or somebody who's running a department, somebody who has a much wider purview, generally those people, they're not stupid, right? They see the complexity of the issues that are coming to their door and, and they potentially see how those things are not caught in any one silo and how they have to find a way to work across government uh, or they have to find a way to you know, account for the evolving nature of whatever the, the work is that they're doing. But again, they usually feel constrained by the, the system that they're part of. And so I think the, in terms of like lack of understanding, I've always been very pleasantly surprised by the people at the top and the bottom of organizations and government. And it's if there's any resistance, it usually comes from what we called in Helsinki the fat middle, um, kind of people whose whose job is disconnected from the everyday concerns of citizens and yet not broad enough to see the interconnected need for a new way of working. Um, what are civic spaces in the city? It's it, Honestly, it's a really tough question. Uh, I'm doing some work on this right now with the Knight Foundation in Philadelphia, and we've been asking ourselves precisely which are the civic spaces. It, you know, the very straightforward things like schools, uh, parks, uh, recreation centers, which are kind of indoor park areas here in the States, um, post offices. Uh, one of the civic spaces that I'm very interested in are, are the lobbies of, of all of the buildings, the public buildings, so public office buildings. You know, and, and you can go on and on, but um, I, uh, I think one of the things that, that we are seeing here is that the civic spaces of the city, so swimming pool, for instance, the public swimming pool, um, is increasingly facing competition from private options. And civic infrastructure in general, you know, like the post office was designed to be a monopoly. And then at a certain point, we had private package carriers, uh, and then eventually we had technology, which was introducing another, another form of competition. Um, and so for me, it's, it's quite interesting to see how these different 
entities start to react um, and think about their role in the city when they're no longer the, the sole source for whatever service they were offering. Um, and frankly, in some places, they're just falling apart. Uh, so here in, in New York, um, libraries, in particular branch libraries, so the ones that are in neighborhoods all over the city, uh, are really struggling in many cases, um, which has to do with the unique funding structure of the city for libraries in particular. But, you know, it's, there's also a kind of uh, cleaving that's happened within American society as a result of uh, income inequality or, or wealth inequality, where the, you know, in a, in a gross stereotype, the, the library is becoming more and more for people without means. And if you have means, you don't go there anymore. So that um, is, a, is a, a, a great failure, I think, of, of the civic spaces um, and of the civic kind of the conceptualization of, of the civic here. And that's something that uh, I'm very concerned about and, and, and actively involved in uh, this project in Philadelphia to try to figure out what we can do about it. I mean, looking at these things as services, is it a case of creating a service that people want to use? Or is it a, also, I guess it's all of these things, but also a case of uh, kind of persuading people that they need to be a part of this and contribute actively themselves? Yeah, I think it's both. And I think there's also, you know, the giant elephant in the room when you talk about public anything in the U.S., is that we don't have a healthy conversation around funding the the civic or, or the public parts of our life. And so when you look at something like libraries um, or really any of the civic spaces in the city, what happened in the middle of the 20th century with uh, white flight from our cities and a declining tax base um, in, in urban places you know, reduce the amount of money that you could spend on maintenance, which meant that a lot of those civic assets fell into disrepair, which meant that people stopped using them or, or people began to, to move away from them, uh, which meant that there was even less of a constituency to, to call for investment in those spaces, which meant they went into even more disrepair, and that becomes a really vicious cycle. And so now what we have are you know, we have a country of bridges and highways and railways and post offices and libraries and hospitals and all sorts of other things that are in varying states of disrepair. But we, we've we also developed these fantastic coping strategies of, of a wide array of private options for those who can afford them. And that means that, you know, libraries and all the rest have a really hard time attracting uh, the kind of interest that they need as a system. So you'll find in New York City, uh, friends of the library association, you know, in the neighborhood um, around a, a, a library in a more affluent neighborhood. But how do you make sure that the library in a neighborhood where people don't have the same means ends up uh, also getting lifted up and also ends up getting supported? And, and that's the real difficulty here is that um, so many of the conditions of libraries, you know, for instance, here in, in New York City is just so dire that um, in, in some cases, you know, you're talking about replacing the entire roof or replacing the entire building. That's a much harder thing to fundraise for because it's, it's not about raising, 
thousands or hundreds of thousands. It's about raising millions of dollars. And another question sort of related to this is like a thing that civic institutions do is they link to each other in a sense. So, I mean, there's a connection between the library and a swimming pool and a park and the wider city. Um, And that's, I guess, is important in sort of fostering a feeling of connectedness to the city as a whole. So have you got any thoughts about how these uh, public spaces can can do that, can link up, can feel like they're part of the same system? And do you think that's important? Yeah, I do think it's important. It is something that, um, again, we're kind of right in the middle of, of, of uh, crunching on here for this work in Philadelphia. And I think part of it comes down to basic public transit. You know, you would have stronger public transit there in London than, than we have here in New York, I, I would say, although I can never manage to navigate the buses in London, so maybe that's not so true. Um, the, the ability of people to move around the city is what encourages disparate assets to be connected into a network or not. So you could make the most attractive swimming pool and the most attractive library that are not too far apart from each other. And if there's not available, uh, uh, easy to use, affordable transportation between them, people just won't do it, right? So, you know, I think fundamentally we have to take public transit seriously. Um, We have to take quality of our streets seriously, uh, we have to take safety of our streets seriously, and, and that's something that the current um, mayor here in, in New York is is working on. But um, beyond those, which are, you know, I think, uh, quite macro-scale issues that will at some point be part of a, a mayor's political platform, I'm sure, the, the other opportunities are really in coordinating the linkages between, and, and this is a place where I, I do see more opportunity for technology, Although, again, in the States, because of um, inequalities in uh, income and, and there's, a, there's a, a difficulty, excuse me, with technology reaching everyone. And so we have to figure out some of the digital divide questions. Uh, but, uh, but technology to, you know, for instance, like, I can't tell you. There very well might be, but I don't know about it. Uh, I can't tell you if there's a, a single source that I could look at and see all of the events across Philadelphia in all of the public spaces, right? Like all of the programming that's on at various uh, swimming pools or in various parks, et cetera, et cetera. Um, that, that seems like a missed opportunity, right? So, you know, those kinds of... Uh, layers that go across the entire city and, and help us understand the city as a as an integrated whole um, and hopefully allow us then to drill down and, and look at specific facets or neighborhoods of it. Um, you know, much more innovation there and, and making really uh, best-in-class um, experiences or, or tools in those categories, I, I think, is, is an opportunity. Civic Radio is part of the Civic Shop which has had a temporary home at Somerset House in central London. We're online at www.civicworkshop.city and you can subscribe to these podcasts by searching for the Tech for Good TV feed on iTunes. Civic Radio